At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now. NASA 557, contact tower 128.15. Caution, caution. Manual, fuel, manual, fuel. I'm John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Abemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, Todd. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. All right. It's you and I. Greg is off on uh, on other business. And we have an uh, interesting show today uh, because we're going to talk about some of the emails that we received. And let me tell you, we have received a lot of emails. I guess we've been hitting nerves on a, on a, a number of people in some of the shows, especially the... Uh, uh, Corey crash in New York City, and a few others as well. But uh, I think I want I want to start with uh, you. Just came back from uh, the Southwest. That's correct. Uh, South by Southwest is a uh, annual event down in Austin, Texas. It lasts about two weeks. It has all kinds of things going on. Probably most known for music and film, but there's also a technical, what they call the interactive version of it. For about a week or so, you have all kinds of technologies. And this year, you had a transportation track where they had all sorts of presentations, static exhibits and whatnot from various parts of the transportation world, including air transportation. And there were a couple of very interesting things that I saw when I was there. You know, I, I uh, saw something someplace about them talking about uh, the taxi service using uh, drones, essentially. Or even, you know, Joby, uh, there's a number of people in that playing field right now. Uh, and I understand, I saw that it was on the agenda. Did you attend that one? Indeed it was. There was a presentation that included the uh, head of Joby, who was, which is a company that is building and going to certify for Part 135 operation, a basically a tilt rotor um, drone type electrically driven aircraft. And I believe has uh, six uh, motors on it, and there'll be pictures of it uh, flashing up on the screen. They're already in flight tests. They're uh, based out of Northern California, 
And this is a concept for air transportation, not just between airport and airport, but they have a broader vision of using this for mobility uh, in various contexts, including landing in places where traditionally you don't have these sorts of things happening. And again, when it comes to this kind of mobility, that is small scale helicopter size, but vertically take off and landing and much quieter than helicopter type aircraft. The idea for this to make money for them, I believe, is to really expand the use of this. So it's no longer just a, a high end sort of add on, sort of like I believe the uh, Blade Company in New York that does flights between Midtown and, and the airports. The idea is to expand this much more broadly. Now, there are a bunch of issues with that, and not all of which were addressed uh, at South by Southwest, but there was that. There was a similar idea called EVE, or a similar company called EVE, which is backed by Airbus, which also has the same idea of having, let's say, a four to six uh, passenger aircraft vertical takeoff and landing. Now, for those of you looking at the video, I was actually sitting in a mock-up of the EVE aircraft, and let's just say that... Uh, the mock-up leaves a bit to be desired for the pilot. I'm about six foot two, and I wear size 14D shoes. I'm not sure what that is in European shoe sizes. Let's just say that I'm in the top five percentile of pilots. And if you, as you can see from the pictures, my knees were such where it was kind of blocking the one screen that they had. And although they don't have floor pedals, the amount of floor space that was in the cockpit was barely big enough for my shoes. So I hope the prototype is a lot bigger than the static display. But that said, there are a lot of interesting people there, including one of your old colleagues, Marianne Blakey, who was the uh, administrator of the FAA at one time, and I believe also on the NTSB uh, before that. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, let's just say, connected people within aviation, as well as a lot of money behind that. Now, there's going to be issues that includes issues dealing with aviation safety. The most, the one that really stuck out to me was a maintenance one. And John and I, uh, John, you and I, and I think Greta has also talked about this. There had, there was at one time no specific requirement to have the power plant license to work on an electric engine on an aircraft. Now, I'm sure that's changed now or will change in the future, but it does say something very specific about the maintenance community. That is, if electrically driven aircraft with electric motors are going to be something that will be out there, not just for drones that are flown remotely, but things with people in them. There'll be a level of maintenance on them far greater than what's usually been seen on electric motors on uh, non-crewed aircraft. And it's uh, the question I have is whether or not there's an infrastructure in place to provide the training and the education so that there's a smooth transition to uh, maintenance professionals working on these kinds of aircraft. Now, getting back to Joby Aviation, uh, to their credit, they've uh, done a lot of outreach at their headquarters, inviting people to uh, look at what's going on, working with the FAA to uh, coordinate the changes of what have to happen in regulations. And I'm sure that they would be open to having uh, maintenance organizations get in touch with them as well to see what they're doing down there in California. And the other issue, beyond maintenance, you're going to have these aircraft flying Part 135. Part 135 pilots have to be highly qualified, have to have, I believe it's 1,200 hours to fly passengers because you literally can't make money if you're only going to fly VFR. So to fly IFR with passengers and Part 135, that's a heavy lift 
with respect to training. My question is, if their vision, not just Joby Aviation, but the other companies, if their vision comes to life and you have thousands of these flying around the country, how are you going to staff these aircraft? Or if you don't staff them, how are you going to transition to autonomous flight with people on board? Again, we're talking about stuff that might be 10 to 15 years in the future, but South by Southwest was about profiling what the future might be, technologically speaking. And in my opinion, advanced air mobility with these kinds of aircraft is going to be part of that future. Oh, there's no question of change is coming. And uh, it's going to be uh, interesting to see. You know, you talked about uh, reaching into smaller communities with these vehicles. You know, we got, you're going to have a landing site. There's, there's all sorts of rules to control where these airplanes can fly, not only air traffic control wise, but also on the ground. You know, if you're going to put up a, a landing facility, there's a, uh, impact studies that have to be done, and some of them take upwards of a year. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the new technology meets the old rules and how responsive. Congress will be to make changes to those rules uh, because we, you know, based on past performance, the FAA is not going to be bending over backwards to change the rules. So it's going to take Congress, an act of Congress, to to uh, make a law that that essentially orders the FAA to to address the issues that come up for, with this type of vehicle. So it's going to be uh, a very interesting time to see how this develops. It is coming though. You know, I, I sound like maybe I'm opposed to it. I'm not opposed to it. I'm, I'm you know, I, I enjoy technology and all the things that technology brings to, to society, uh, but it's not without uh, obstacles and, and roadblocks and gonna drive the people that wanna want to put these vehicles into use. It's gonna drive them crazy. Now so there is a, a couple of stories about a different related technology that I wanted to share because it uh, brings to mind some of the issues we deal with in, in aviation safety. Basically, uh, the unmentionable has to be mentioned and has to be discussed and has to be analyzed in order for it not to be a problem. In this case, the unmentionable is hydrogen. Uh, Hydrogen-driven uh, engines and motors for both aircraft and for ground vehicles is something that's on the horizon that goes beyond what batteries can do now for a whole bunch of reasons. And uh, one of the basic questions I asked a person who was in one of these companies, who I won't name, the company or the person, I, t I introduced myself, told them I'm involved in aviation safety. And one of the things we deal with is answering uncomfortable questions, common questions that people come up with. And I asked this person, look, if you're going to have hydrogen-driven aircraft or what have you, uh, how are you going to respond when someone in the public raises the, the issue of, hey, what about the Hindenburg? How are you going to keep something like that from happening? This person's response was, well, we don't want to discuss that. And this person walks away from me. Fast forward to the very last thing I did at South by Southwest. I did something fun. I went to a presentation that featured William Shatner of Star Trek thing. And he talked about a lot of things, including his flight in the uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, New Shepard rocket. And he talked about how he went into the capsule, looked down through the window and saw on the ground that there was some sort of fog or whatever coming away from the airport, from the spacecraft. And he asked someone, what's that? And the person said, hydrogen. And Shatner said, yes, the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg. And it's like, that's what I'm talking about. 
I don't care how safe it is. I don't care how advanced the technology is. If you're talking hydrogen, the Hindenburg is patient zero when it comes to the public's idea of aviation disasters. That is probably the most famous uh, film of all time of any kind of uh, vehicle crashing. And I'm absolutely sure that the first time there is a, a hydrogen accident with a ground or an air vehicle, that video will be playing again. So my challenge to the community that's saying that this is a technology that's in the future, I believe you. Be ready to answer every kind of Hindenburg question that will come your way, because they will. It certainly will. That that one's played over and over on, on the accident channels, you know, multiple times a year. So there's a lot of people that are aware of it. Well, Todd, we've received, every week we receive a considerable number of emails. But I thought there was a couple here that I thought uh, would be interesting to talk about. And the first one that I picked out was a uh, one that's, that uh, is in your in your playground, so to speak, and it's a a close call in the clouds. I sent that to you a little while ago. Did you see it? Yes, indeed. And this is, uh, and I have to be a little bit careful here. This was a a pilot who's training to be an airline pilot. This happened when he was a student pilot, and he's flying. I'll just say in a European country, and he introduces the letter by saying that he's actually seen. UI and Greg on the air crash investigations has watched a lot of them and have, has learned a lot from them. And he talks about an event when he was a student where he was doing a cross country. The weather was okay at his origin airport. It was okay at the destination. Forecast was, was for scattered clouds uh, at the origin. And he thought the weather would be the same at the destination. He didn't specifically say whether he checked the weather or not, but in route, things worsened. Instead of having scattered clouds, he was actually going into clouds. And he went into a cloud that he thought would he'd come out of soon, but he didn't. And he got uh, kind of panicked and frightened in the middle of the cloud. And he was fixated on looking out the window. He didn't know that he was not flying straight and level anymore until he looked at his instruments and realized he was in a left descending turn. Didn't even feel he was in a left descending turn. And the first thing he he said came to mind was, you know, what he had heard us say, one of us say in those, those episodes, concentrate, focus on flying the aircraft, analyze the situation and recover. He said he snapped out of it, looked at his instruments, realized what kind of turn he was in, realized he was in an area with hills at about 1,300 feet, and he was ascending. He leveled the wings, put on the power, rose up to 3,000 feet, did a 180, followed his instruments, got out of the clouds and was able to get himself oriented and eventually land. And he said that uh, when he landed, he was uh, covered in sweat, not far off the uh, scene from the movie Airplane. Those of you who've seen the movie Airplane, you know what we're talking about. And uh, he goes on to thank us and says he subscribes to the show and we thank you for that. But uh, this is one of those things that uh, reminds me and you and all of us who do this that all the things that we do, whatever show we show up, we show up on, whatever podcast we're in, when we're sharing our experiences and we're analyzing events, it's for educational purposes. It's for whatever purpose it takes to keep these things from happening. And if one pilot snapped out of it quickly enough to avert disaster, you know, that's all the satisfaction we'll ever want from this. 
Yes, no question about it. And it's so easy to get in into trouble, you know, flying where big puffy clouds all around the place. And you think you see the one in front of you, but you have no idea how far it goes, how far and wide. And the weather changes so quickly, or at least here in New England, we know that, you know, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. because it'll be. <laughs> so depending on where you are, I was always so jealous of, of the, my friends out in the West Coast in Southern California and Arizona that they could fly clear weather day after day after day. And here I can remember showing up at the airport, which was a chore for me sometimes to get to the airport uh, because it was, it was outside of Boston. And, uh, and early on I had to hitchhike cause I didn't have a car. If I couldn't bum a ride, then I, you know, tried anything I, I could to uh, get out there. And in those days, hitchhiking was, was pretty common. And, uh, you get out there and then you can't fly because of clouds, low clouds. Or maybe you got off the ground and all of a sudden you realize how bad the weather was uh, where you wanted to go. And you either turned around and went where the weather was good or you went back and practiced with some uh, touch and goes and so on. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, as we say, and I say at the end, and you're pre-planning, you've got to think about the weather, where you are, where you're going. And everything in between, because it you know the further you go, the more in between there is, and the more time, more opportunity for problems to appear. That's all part of pre-planning. All right, I'll let you pick from the list that we had. Well, there's a uh, problems that are caused from not proper planning. Then there are problems that are caused by very deliberate planning of a very negative type. And this was in 2020 event where this person was convicted of, I'll, I'll say the wording here, knowingly and willfully falsified an aircraft's annual inspection records. He also falsely, fraudulently represented himself as an inspection authorization holder and falsely certified he performed an annual inspection on an aircraft and determined it was in an airworthy condition. And it's all probably to make them make money. You know, I didn't read anywhere in there that he had an IA at any point in time. The only that he held out that he had one. So maybe he did have one. But boy, that's a scary thought. And it's just one more area of risk that a private pilot who has an annual inspection due or any maintenance that's due, it has to be concerned with. And, you know, in most airports, if somebody is out there holding themselves out there as an IA, uh, other people on the airport would raise the issues if something happened. If he had an IA and it was suspended because he did something stupid, uh, the buzz around the airport would be such. But there's also a lot of airports where there's one mechanic and he's the IA. Right. Really small airports. And, and this this uh, this site from the federal court system doesn't say what kind of airport it was. So I don't know if he was the only guy there or if it was a bigger airport. But in any event, if you own an airplane and you're going to bring it into some place uh, to have work done on it, if it's not a big repair station, you don't see a repair station uh, posting on the wall of the facility, which is required, uh, you should do some phone calling or do some checking. All those records are available. You can find out if someone has an a AMP license. You can find out if they have 
inspection authorization. There is a process to do that. The FAA does that so that you can check out whoever's working on your airplane. So if, as if most private uh, pilots don't have enough to worry about, they need to worry about the facility they use. And and not to not to uh, cast aspersions on these small uh, A&P shops that are around the country, but you need to make sure that the place that you're having the work done is up to the standards that you demand for your airplane because you're flying it and everything uh, that's precious to you is going to be on that airplane at some point in time. So you need to make sure that it really is done by people that are qualified and knowledgeable and, and uh, have demonstrated their ability to do the work in a, in a very thoughtful manner. Well, by the way, this person who had the falsified, falsified records, an aircraft that he inspected was in a crash that caused by an in-flight power loss. It doesn't say in the Department of Justice uh, press release if there were serious injuries or deaths. But again, do you really want to take the risk and be in that situation? And could you imagine if, I'm not saying this happened, but let's, let's say you as the aircraft owner or the pilot or whatever wanted to save some money by using somebody who can fake it. Well, you're going to be in trouble too, if not with the federal government, then with your insurance company. And our favorite insurance company, Avemco, would probably take a very very, very dim view of this kind of activity. So yeah, and that's the other piece. You should make sure that whoever does the work on your airplane has insurance. Because there's many, many mechanics that work out there that don't have insurance. And when I when I had my own little FBO uh, doing aircraft maintenance, although I was working on larger airplanes most of the time, uh, I had I spent a lot of money on insurance. Uh, so it's definitely uh, something that you should check. I used to get checked uh, pretty regularly. All right, so we have another comment in there involving uh, a famous baseball player again. And it touches on one of the things that I hold near and dear to my heart. So I'll let you read it, Todd, and leap into it. Well, this is from my, uh, someone uh, from JJ who sent us this comment. You asked what the instructor was doing during this maneuver. But I'm also wondering what he was doing during the planning phase. Even if he was not actively involved in the planning process, as a more experienced airman, you expect him to offer assistance or to inquire what the plans are as a matter of curiosity, if nothing else. Couldn't have said it better myself. If you happen to be somebody with experience, insights, etc., and you're there, there's a passenger or a friend or whatever, it doesn't mean you stop being a professional. It doesn't mean you stop uh, thinking. It doesn't mean you stop using your experience and your and your uh, discretion. Right. Did, did this guy just show up and walk out to the airplane and get on board? Or was he inside with them? You know, calls in the question, the pre-flight, calls in question, a lot of questions about his role in all of this. I mean, he was an instructor pilot, uh, I believe, wasn't he? He was an instructor pilot. He was not an instructor for Corey Lytle, or uh, nor is he qualified on that particular aircraft. But still, he's an instructor. He's got experience. He had way more hours than Corey Lytle. You know, it's all about the detail. Follow the detail. If you don't follow the process and ask questions about the process, then you you're not contributing in any way, right? You don't have you don't have to know the airplane to understand the process of pre-planning. Right, and weather checking and so on and so on, and understanding the rules of flying up the river. That is not so easy. 
And why they didn't take the violation just not to turn into the city is beyond me. I mean, it could have popped up and got on the radio and just and told LaGuardia Tower that, that they're popping up. They're coming up. They have a problem and they're coming up. And, you know, so the FAA comes after you. So you get a slap on the wrist. You're still there to, to uh, enjoy the pain instead of what happened. So it's really uh, plan, plan, plan. Before you get to the airplane, you should have a plan that's been vetted at least twice and and uh, and then do a good walk around on your airplane. Here we go again with my my uh, end of pod speech. I am I, I really do feel like a preacher. And and uh, people I run into people and they they uh, remind me of that preacher. In fact I had a guy a while ago call me Preacher John and I had to laugh. But, I mean I feel like that sometimes. But it's just that those issues need to be repeated over and over and over until you finally get them in your head and they become second nature uh, because you're rushed. There's lots of other factors that come into it. Right? So uh, that was an interesting point that, you know, what was he doing? We'll never know, but it was interesting. And, uh, well, we have another item that's hot in the news. <laughs> Security at airports. Oh, my. All right. So just recently, we had a, a California adventure where a commercial operator with multiple helicopters had one stolen and crashed right on the airport. And apparently, the person who did it got away. I don't know if they found them subsequent to the article. But it raises a lot of questions about small airports. And unlike uh, when I first started flying in the 1970s, even small airports have uh, more than a small amount of security around them. Uh, gates with cipher locks on them, and you have to get permission to be on the airport, and you have to be vetted. Now, of course, these, this is not Fort Knox. This is not the Pentagon. If you're really, really, really intending to get on an airport, there are ways to cut through the fence, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not going to stop a very dedicated person. This will stop the casual person, the person who's out on, I don't know, just joyriding around looking for something fun to do. We don't know if this person who got into the helicopter was one of these people. But it does uh, show you that even if it is something that seems this innocent, you had several, not just this helicopter, several other aircraft damaged in and around where this happened. So there's untold amounts of damage, all kinds of disruption of whatever was going on there, whether they're flight schools or private flyers or corporate flyers or what have you. And this is not something that would uh, make any airport operator feel good that this sort of thing is happening. Now, if this is a one-off thing, that's one thing. If there's some sort of issue around the country with airport break-ins and attempted uh, theft of aircraft, well, if there is something like this happening, I hope it's not kept under wraps. I hope that the relevant authorities send out bulletins to airport operators and whatnot to look out for this kind of activity. So it's worrisome. I just hope it's not a pattern. And there's an awful lot of small airports. You know, I wrote for, uh, in my past, I wrote for AIN, and I actually did several articles about small airports. And I can recall driving around in the western part of Massachusetts and in uh, the eastern, right at the Mass New York border. 
and and actually Lamont border as well, out in that whole area. And uh, I remember one day seeing a, a J3 sticking out of a, a, a T-hanger with no hanger doors. So it was just a roof, essentially. And uh, I turned around and drove right in, right up to the airplane. There was nobody around. Uh, I mean, it was wide open. There was probably six or eight airplanes on the on the ground. And, uh, of course, I went in because I learned to fly in the J2, J3. So I was just reminiscing. And uh, But there was other airplanes on the, on the field. I never tried it. I never touched anything to, to know that, it, you know, it's very hard to lock up a J3. So I assume they take some precautions. I saw some airplanes in these in these small airports that I went into that had chains around the propeller, so which caused a big problem if you tried to start them, uh, imbalanced uh, rotating weight. So there are things that individual owners can do, but you know these airports don't have a lot of re uh, revenue. They don't have a lot of money to go for gates or whatever. And I, in fact, one of the airports had a gate, a chain link gate on the road, but 50 feet to the left side of the fence and ended. So you could just walk around. You'd have to cut your way through. You just walk around it. It was meant to stop any motor vehicle traffic from getting onto the uh, grass runway. But if somebody could walk through with no problem at all, I'm not advocating any security for these facilities because I think it, it would be counterproductive. And the reason why I say that is, you know, we build desire in people that want to go flying by giving them access to it. I think about myself as a young kid. I was at the airport every day after school. I spent my time on Boston Logan Airport. There was no question in my mind that I wasn't going to end up working at, at some airport someplace sometime after I got through school. And I didn't even know what it was. And that's why I started flying. I mean, I was 15 years old when I started to fly. And just, we've, let, we've, we've taken that away with fences around so many airports. We've taken away the ability of people to come in and visit the airport. It just, we don't, we don't get it. If you don't have an ID that's issued by the state, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you can't get on the airport. I had one for here in Massachusetts for a number of years, uh, but it's, it's gone. Just the regulations and the and the bureaucracy to try to get one because you can't get one unless somebody sponsored you. Used to be you could just walk up and get one. Now you have to have, be connected with some operator on the airport, have a private pilot's license. There's a whole bunch of of uh, rules and regulations that just keep the average person off the airport. And that's I, I believe that's part of the reason why we're having people problems today, because we've just not we haven't reached out to the community and got people excited about aviation. So that's a negative, And I hope someday that we figure out a way how to fix it. And the last one that I think we should mention today is one right up your alley. We, we got a record. We got some comments, several comments about FOIA requests. And uh, they, they were actually aimed at you because you are our FOIA <laughs> guru. You're the one that goes after all of those all the time. So why don't you respond to that one? Well, we'll credit this uh, question to uh, Carrie. And his question was simple. What amount of time should you expect for response for a FOIA request? 
And the answer, as with just about anything else to do with the government, is it depends. Now, I've done several FOIA requests, and I actually do two whenever I do one, because if there's an accident, or I suspect there's an accident, the NTSB is part of the investigation, as well as the FAA. If it doesn't rise to the level of an accident, or if it's a non-flying event that deals with something that the FAA would have control over, I would only go with the FAA. And I'll give you one example. Uh, there was a, a, an incident, a runway incident, with an aircraft with the organization where I, I also rent aircraft. And just and no one got injured. It was not, not a serious thing. It was a runway excursion, bent landing gear. And I asked for any pictures that they had, any um, voice communication they had with the tower. And the FAA and the NTSB gave me volumes of information, dozens and dozens of photographs, a full hour-long audio of what was happening in the control tower. And again, there was nothing surprising there in the sense of something that was hidden from the incident report. But it was very thorough, and I, oh, I thanked them for that. Another one I did, which was surprising in the amount of information they gave me, was with a fatal event at an airport that I go to for practice takeoffs and landings. And I go to that airport frequently, and I wanted to know if there was anything about the event that would be useful for my training. And I eventually, I especially wanted to do this because um, there had been mention of two videos that were taken that should have been in the NTSB public docket, but weren't. So when I asked for the FOIA for that, they said, oh, those, those should be in the docket. They didn't send me anything, but a few days later, a couple of weeks later, maybe about a month later, the two videos showed up. But before then, the surprising thing they gave me was the entire logbook of the flight instructor. There was a student, a flight instructor, and there were some pages of the flight instructor's logbook and the NTSB doc, uh, public docket. But I got the whole thing from the NTSB. Now, they redacted some things, so some private information about it was out there, but I got the entire record of this instructor pilot's uh, history of flying, which would be a, a, well, a fantastic piece of information if there's someone out there who wanted to study this particular incident, this accident rather, in detail, to see if there's anything about the record of his flights up to that point that would shed light on preventing things in the future. So in answer to uh, Terry's question, it could take a few days to a couple of months, but you go through the process, both of which are online, and you wait and see what happens. You know, while I was, while I was with the NTSB, I had uh, a number of FOIA requests for information come in, not to my office, but in through the proper channels at the NTSB, and then they would go around to send an um, internal correspondence with all the board members asking for any documents they may have related to the, whatever the event was. And they would have, in, in the request, they would have the internal documents listed that they've already uncovered from uh, other departments within the NTSB. But then they wanted to know if the board members were sitting on them. And we, we had to go through in the beginning a whole bunch of, of material because I collected all kinds of stuff. If I if there was an issue coming up, I, I reached out to, to wherever I could for additional information. And I soon learned that as soon as that as soon as you're done with that event, you take all that information and and not keep it. So you wouldn't have to have to uh, go through. It was public sourced material. 
It wasn't stuff that I got because of the NTSB. It was information was out in the public that could be retrieved at any time. But just so I wouldn't have to go through the paperwork nightmare of putting that all together, it just kept to be a minimum uh, that was required NTSB documents so that the office wouldn't have to be bogged down looking for all that stuff. Uh, so it's very interesting the amount of material that you collect when you're involved in an accident incident. And if you keep it, you're going to be responsible for turning it over if somebody sends in an FOIA request. So, and they take a long time sometimes. I, I can recall those documents coming around to the offices and they were already months old. And some, some of the, uh, the offices that had material would take another three or four weeks before they would produce it all, before they found it all. So I, I took, and I wasn't smart enough to, to realize how to, how to cover myself, so to speak. So I wouldn't have to do that work. It came from one of the other offices. So just don't keep it. Either send it back to the docket, or, or if it's not part of the docket, just get rid of it. If it's public information, just get rid of it. So that's what we did. So before I let you have the last word, I'd like to have the opportunity for the next to last word. And it's going to be very brief. I'd like to thank everyone for the questions and comments that you set in. And I almost forgot the most important one. Uh, there was a gentleman who uh, I'm not going to, oh, I don't see his uh, handle. It wasn't, it wasn't a name. It was a, an unusual handle that he had. But it was a very pointed thing. He said, hey, your show you did about the Yeti crash, the preliminary report, one of your slides, you misidentified things. You said it was a thrust lever. It was a condition lever. You're absolutely correct. I went in there and corrected the slide. So if you go back and see that, that video, at about the 8 minute and 15, point, 15 second point, you'll see the corrected slide. So thank you very much for sending that uh, observation in. And yes, if we screwed up, we want to know. And we will admit it because we're not, we're not infallible either. And... Here at the end, I will just put my preacher hat on, take this one off, put my preacher hat on, <laughs> and, and say, if you're going to go flying, pre-plan, pre-plan, pre-plan. Before you leave the house, think about what you're going to do. Look at all the, all the ingredients, if you will. You know, the weather, such and such. When you get to the airport, do it over again. Don't just cherry pick and say, yeah, it's still good. Do it over again. Make sure the weather is right. Make sure everything's right. And when you go out and do the pre-flight, do a thorough pre-flight. We're going to get into uh, some interesting pre-flight accidents here at some point in time. I've started to collect them. And, uh, you know, how, how unfortunate is it that if you did a lousy pre-flight, you're going out and you you kill yourself for something that should have been caught before you even left the tie down. It's just so painful. And just think about the pain for the families and everyone else that you're involved with if you do something dumb like that. Right? So do a good pre-flight. And when you get in the air, put that head on a swivel. Especially, it's important as hell. But just think, so far this year, with major airlines... We've had seven issues with runway incursions of some form, 
uh, diversions because of a runway incursion. We saw that in, in Austin, Texas. We saw it in uh, incursion in JFK. Uh, there was one just a few days ago or a week ago, the 14th, I think it was, which would make it seven days ago in uh, Reagan Airport. I mean, we've got seven so far this year with airliners, uh, heavy, heavy metal. There's a bunch of those out there with little airplanes, too. So put that head on a swivel. Pay attention to what you're doing. Lots of students out there today. Lots of students flying rented airplanes, and I sure hope they've got rental insurance on themselves and on, on, on for their own protection on the airplane. Rental insurance is not that expensive. And you got to pay attention when you're in the air. You got to keep your eyes open. You know, that one guy that flew into the clouds, right? So what's he looking? He kept, was his, was he glued looking at the whiteout in front of him, trying to see when he breaks out that he wasn't looking at, looking at the instruments to realize he was descending and turning. That's probably what it was, but that's speculation on my part, but, it's all important to save your butt. I had to think about the right word there. All right. So having said all that, thank you. Thank everybody for listening. Thank you, Todd. And please, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that. And we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.